Welcome back to the Trojan Talk podcast, which has been on hiatus for no other reason than there hasn't been a lot of compelling stuff to discuss with the USC football program in recent weeks. The coaching search is ongoing, but you know there's no leaks coming out of USC. There's no developments to break down. We'll certainly delve deeper into that over the coming month as, as we get closer to an actual hire or likely time frame for a hire. But, yeah, there's been some ugly losses, some games that I know that USC fans had no interest in reliving or breaking down. And myself and my trusty co-host, Max Brown, have been on on the road with the conflicting travel schedules. So we've been apart for a few weeks, but we are back. The team is back today. Max, welcome back. How are you? I'm great. Good to be back. And, yeah, I mean, it's funny. When you lose a bunch of games, it leaves you with not much to talk about and hey now that we've uh, creeped into november hopefully it makes mean some wins and a bowl appearance and obviously uh, hopefully a, a new head coach here uh, sooner rather than later as well well that's a very optimistic view <laughs> <laughs> do you think do you think we get it before december 1st the, the coaching hire i do the bowl game i'm not expecting uh, uh, I agree. I agree with both sentiments. I was trying to be positive, but I'm with you. It's hard to uh, scratch out a few more wins. But no, I mean, we'll, we'll break that down and, and break down what the path would be to a, a bowl bid. We're going to obviously go deep into the quarterback rotation and the way things were handled with Keaton Slovis and Jackson Dart. And that's why we have our resident quarterback on the show to give his perspective. I want to talk about Keontae Ingram a little bit. We'll talk about the ASU game. But we have to start with the news of the week. We're talking Clay Helton again. <laughs> Georgia Southern, baby. Georgia Southern. What USC fan could have expected that Clay Helton would have a head coaching job before the Trojans had a new head coach? My goodness. <laughs> That's so true. What was your first reaction when you saw it? USC changed their practice schedule this week due to election day even though there aren't really any major elections out here, but it's an NCAA thing. And so they practice Monday instead of Tuesday. So Tuesday was kind of a day off. I was bopping around town, went down to Newport for lunch, and I see the tweets come out from Matt Zenitz and then Bruce Feldman that Clay Helton is a serious candidate for Georgia Southern. And I start texting with my buddies on the beat, and I'm saying, I mean, it's not going to happen, guys. This is just getting floated around. This is not going to happen. And within hours, it's no longer a rumor. It's an official announcement from Georgia Southern that Clay Helton is the new head coach of the Eagles of Statesboro, Georgia. And I'm still processing it, I guess. I'm certainly happy for Clay. We've always said on the show, and uh, I've written on the, on the message board and columns, despite whatever you think of him as a coach, and there are so many fair criticisms, uh, always uh, one of the nicest guys, at least us in the media, uh, always a very stand-up guy, a guy that you would like to see do well. I know USC fans probably aren't too invested in anything regarding Clay Helton at this point, but I hope it works out for him. I'm, I'll share my thoughts as we get deeper into the conversation. I don't know if it was the best fit for him, but it's definitely fascinating. How, how about you, Max? Yeah, it's funny you said that last, don't know if it's the best fit, because that was my first reaction, but then when I took a step back, I was like, man, this makes this makes some some sense, and on a personal level, I remember the first conversation I ever had with anyone related to USC football was Clay Helton back in 2011, decade ago, um, and I remember my first conversation, this coach had a southern accent, 
And I was like, what, what, what is going on here? This is the, the quarterback coach at USC. Like, why, why does he have a Southern accent? It just, it just caught me off guard. But then, so then when, when I saw this news, I was like, you know what? Maybe Clay Hilton just, just it w- wants to get back to his roots, right? He had his L.A. chapter. He had his West Coast flashy chapter. I know he loved living here. But in terms of proximity in that regard, I could see it, you know, see, I could see Clay, you know, setting up shop there for another decade and saying, you know what, I'm going to be here. I'm going to live a little small town life and and do that aspect, which I think is, is in his blood in, in, in some respects. And the second part, I think it also shows that, hey, I'm sure there's a part of Clay that says, man, that SC chapter took a toll on me. The scrutiny, the criticism, which, like you said, much of which was was fair. But he's probably stepping back saying, man, I'm going to go down to uh, a smaller school, but still big enough to, you know, have that have that buzz, so to speak. Uh, but a smaller school and, you know, pressure is not as much. Uh, his wife, Angela, can, you know, be low key and, and things of that nature. And I think clay wants to be a head coach i always thought he might take a step back and go back to his coordinating roots which the whole reason he got to sc in the first place was lane kiffin was very impressed with his ability to call plays and coming from lane kiffin that's that's no small feat so i thought there was a world where he went back to the oc world but i think this shows how much clay really enjoys being a head coach and you know mentoring guys and all that so i say all that because it makes sense to me i I can see the fit now uh it's not as random as when i first read the headline Okay, that's all fair. I'm going to give you the three reasons why it doesn't make sense to me. And the first is kind of what you hinted at. He went through a toll here at USC the last few years. I would have thought that he would be somewhat relieved to have some time off and to decompress and go on vacation, you know, do something just totally away from football and and get out of that grind for a while. You're still getting paid for the next – the rest of this season plus two more seasons you're financially secure you have a beautiful house with this gorgeous balcony and this awesome view uh in los angeles that we've seen on on twitter videos before enjoy life for a little bit why jump right back into the grind less than two months later so that was surprise number one surprise number two is that georgia southern has traditionally been a triple option program and the few times they've deviated away from that style, it has been short-lived and unsuccessful. And, you know, I don't know that Clay Helton per se has a defined offensive system or style. They certainly went through some different variations, very contrasting variations at USC. I'm sure he's flexible, but is he going to go in there and and install something brand new with personnel that doesn't fit? Or is he going to hire a triple option offensive coordinator and run a system he's never run? So that was surprising to me. And then three, and I did think that he could get another head coaching job eventually. I thought it would be at a lower level. I thought it would maybe be somewhere where the pressure wasn't intense. And you may think that that is Georgia Southern and Statesboro, Georgia. But let me tell you, as someone who – covered FCS football for six years, covered a game against Georgia Southern. That fan base celebrated six FCS national championships between 85 and 2000. And while they haven't gotten back to that point since now, they've been in the FBS and the Sunbelt Conference since 2014. When you've reached that height, those expectations never go away. I mean, USC fans know that as well as anybody. So that is not a sleepy program where you can – get by and have some ups and downs. They've been through four coaches since moving to the FBS in 2014. 
There is not a super long leash there. They expect to win. They're trying to assert themselves in the Sun Belt at the next level. And I just I think that Clay is walking into a pressure-filled situation with a program that has run an offensive system that he's not familiar with. And I, I don't know if it was the right move for him. Now, I don't know how many options he would have had. This may have been the only head coaching option that, that came down the pike for him, or at least the only one that he thought was of a decent enough level and he wanted to pounce. But I'm surprised all around. I'm surprised that Georgia Southern chose Clay. And not that I think he can't be a head coach somewhere. I just, again, not an obvious fit here. And I'm surprised that he took it. I think it's a fair point. And the, the factor that is most intriguing to me is the mentality of Clay Helton. You alluded to it right there. Like, you, you'd think my man would want to take a year off or at least take, I mean, some time off. But sure enough, he's right back to the grind. And I say that because Clay reminds me of a guy that could have the mentality of, hey, I'm going to come here. I'm, I'm going to be somewhere for a decade. I'm not trying to move around. I'm a family man, like that type of thing. Or does Clay have a chip on his shoulder? And obviously he's competitive and whatnot, so I'm sure there's some chip. But is his mindset that, hey, this is the next stop for me to potentially get an ACC job? Or I know this might sound crazy to SC fans, but if he does well there, does he make a jump that Lane Kiffin made and, you know, go back into major power five football? He put out a statement yesterday after the hire, and it uh, it was vintage Clay Helton in the messaging department. And he said he wants to build a program that is consistently winning championships and is the platinum standard of college football on a national scale. I don't know what that means, but... (laughs) (laughs) But Georgia Southern, man, get ready. Get ready for it. Platinum standard is going to be the buzzword in Statesboro, Georgia, moving forward. No, I'm happy for Clay. I hope it works out for him. I have my doubts, and that's not to be mean or anything. I'm just being objective. I just... I don't know, and I don't think he's going to have a massive leash there. But then again, he got a I think it was a five-year contract, I think was the reported terms, for 800000 a year. So uh, maybe that buys him enough time to get things going. It'll be very interesting, and this is the last point I'll say, but it'll be very interesting to see if Clay's style changes at all or his demeanor changes at all. And the reason I say that is Kiffin is a completely different coach as a from a personality standpoint now than when he was at SC. I mean, the interviews, the social media, just the, the, the vibe on the sideline, things of that nature. I think Kiffin learned from his time at SC and said, you know what? I got to adapt. I got to adjust. I got to be more myself. I got to have fun with it, that, that type of thing. It'll be interesting to see if Clay changes things as well. And obviously the first word that comes out is the discipline aspect. Yeah. I think coming after Sark, he naturally fell into that nice guy role even more so than he would have already done naturally because, you know, of, of the difficulties under Sark. He was kind of the, the guy everyone everyone went to, to to find comfort, so to speak. And I think that ultimately led to his downfall at SC because he never was able to have that edge and, and instill that, you know, grit into the team. It will be interesting to see if from, if from afar that narrative at least adjusts. He's always going to be nice. He's always going to be Clay Helton. But if that, that grittiness and that discipline aspect uh, adjusts at Georgia, Georgia Southern. That's a great point. And that goes back to what I was saying before with the take some time off. I don't know if he's had time to reflect and, and reevaluate anything. It's been a month and a half. I mean, if he had taken a year off and watched other programs, you know, done the thing that, that coaches do where they travel around and spend time on other programs just to observe and, and had really, you know, taken in some different perspective, 
then I could believe that that might be possible. But he's just jumping from one thing to the next. Is he going to be a different clay? We'll see. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued though. I mean, I'm paying attention and and tracking their their progress and see what happens. Anyways, our USC listeners don't want a full podcast about Clay Helton anymore. Uh, we are on to other things. Let's talk about the presence and USC's quarterback rotation. I'm going to defer my thoughts till after I hear what you say because I don't want to influence anything. Not that I would, but I want to start with your opinion. How did you feel about the way that was deployed last week? Yeah, I walked into the game not knowing what the plan was or what the plan was going to be, and it sounds like in many respects that's kind of how everyone was, both the quarterbacks and the coaches. I think my, my impression is that Dante felt that Jackson had done enough to earn some role in the game. And I think the whole third series deal makes sense. I'm good with that, right? Because, you know, it's not just the second series where, hey, you, you, you lose momentum from Keaton Slovis if he has a, a good first drive. But I do think I have a problem with the there's no there's no clarity to, to me the second you break the seal and you allow jackson dart to, to to play if it's at all close you got to go with jackson dart i think the halfway wishy-washy nature if 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 this was a long-term like th- 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 that would not happen if it was an interim head coach i think dante's in a position where hey he knows he's only really got a month left here hey this guy's playing well this guy's playing well let's let's both let's let's play them both so i see where he's coming from and i think they him and graham definitely i mean obviously wanted to have it play out itself to me the second you you break the seal and then keen throws that pick six i think you've got to stick with the young guy i think going back and forth is not fair to, to either of them that said i still think if, if jackson is banged up and the mobility is not a factor i think right now Going into Tempe, I do think Keaton gives you the best chance to win, which I know is a hot take. I don't think that margin is wide at all. Uh, don't get me wrong. But I, I just think this is this awkward gray area that they got themselves into, and there's no there's no plan. And um, I'm good with it on one hand because I think it's just the, the byproduct of an interim head coach. But if this was a long-term strategy beyond just this year, I would think it's a, it's a poor decision, and you got to go with the young guy once you break the seal. Very interesting. I did not know which way you are going to go with that, and that's interesting. I know a large segment of our of the USC fan base, of our TrojanSports.com community, is all in on making the move to Dart. I have kind of been thrust into the role of Keaton Slovis apologist just because the, the takes have gotten so – aggressive that because people want to see dart everything slovis does is bad now and and there's revisionist history oh he was never that good anyway this and that and i just feel i've been battling logic and and reality and trying to set the record straight but going back to the rotation here are my problems with it one i think it's silly to not let the team know what's going to happen i mean we asked brett nealon starting center at what point did you know that they were going to rotate quarterbacks and he goes not until Dart came in the game. I had no idea. I mean, what is the upside of not telling your linemen, hey, uh, just so you know, head, heads up, uh, you'll be snapping the two quarterbacks this week. Just want to you know, let you know the plan. That just seems silly. The quarterbacks didn't find out until Friday night, apparently, or Friday. And both of them said they did not know who was going to play in the fourth quarter. All they knew was that 
Uh, Dart was going to get a few series, and it was going to be he's going to come in in the third series of the game. And so they're both on the sideline in the fourth quarter of what became a close game, wondering who's going out there. That's that's an issue. My biggest issue is having any kind of preset plan that doesn't take into account game flow. I just I don't understand the advantage of saying we are going to rigidly do this no matter what. This is our plan. And they bent ever so slightly because they were going to have Dart come in the third series. But what happens? Slovis leads two touchdown drives, including a 62-yard bomb to Gary Bryan Jr. And so they keep him in for one more series and then yank him. But even still, at that point, he was 10 of 12 for 150-some yards and two touchdown drives in three series. Like, maybe just keep rolling for a little bit with that, and there's still a lot of game left, and you can put Dart in a little bit later. But no, the, the plan is the plan. We, we have a plan. He has to go in now. It just it doesn't make sense to me. And then I thought Slovis made some good points. I mean, obviously he came in and wasn't quite the same the rest of the way. He came back and threw the touchdown to Gary Bryant into the first half, but it was never really the same the rest of the way. Throws the bad pick, and he said that – the defense makes adjustments during the game that you notice if you're in there and, and watching them make those adjustments in front of you. And he had not picked up from the sideline that the linebacker was creeping over on those slants more and, and ready to jump that, and that if he had played the whole game, he, he might have been more attuned to that. Max, is that a fair point from a quarterback perspective? I think it's fair, but at the end of the day, like – I mean, you, you got to make the read, and you got to you, you got to react. I mean, and especially for a guy who's played a lot of football, it may be a different different deal if it was a younger quarterback type of deal. But right, your your point's totally fair, and I think at the end of the day, that's just why two quarterback systems don't work. Because the flip side is, hey, if you didn't have a plan, then we'd be sitting here saying, hey, this is random. Like they 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 throw in one guy one time and another guy the other time, and so I would have never especially with Jackson being banged up, I don't think you had to do that. And maybe that's where playing Arizona was not an advantageous time because you may have never done that if you were playing a better, excuse me, better Arizona State team. But I think I would have stuck with Keaton. But the second you break the seal, then you got to commit at some point. And that's where I would go with the young guy if he's truly healthy enough to play. But I'm with you. In terms of the back and forth and guys not being in rhythm, it sucks. It's terrible. I lived it in, in, in a couple of weeks at SC. It's hard to get into rhythm. And as a quarterback, you your mindset shifts from, hey, I'm playing the Arizona Wildcat defense to, hey, I'm playing my own coach, and I'm trying to beat out the other quarterback behind yep. me. And that mentality is not ideal for anyone involved. No, I mean, the whole way they've handled this, even going back to the week after Washington State when Dante is fueling the, the flames of a QB battle, even though it's known inside the building that Dart's going to be out for a while, all that's done is just allowed the fan base to, to pounce and, and cast doubt upon Slovis, who has admittedly battled confidence issues in the past. It just It's a very curious tact to take. And we talked to Slovis after the game, and I asked him, you know, when this plan was relayed to you Friday night, like, how did you process it? And he goes, well, I, I, want, I, just, I asked why. I said, is it something I'm doing that's causing this? And it was clear he didn't really get much clarity on the answer. So he's going into this game in his head going, why is this happening? Am, am, am I being punished somehow? Is this because of me? You know, I, I just don't think it was handled well. And going back to just having a preset plan that doesn't take into account game flow, I felt the same way about that in all regards. I mean, this goes back to the 
the old running back rotation or the we have a 1A, 1B, and they're going to get equal amount of carries. Why? Like Just pl- play the game and react based on what's happening. Maybe if they had done that earlier, they would have realized that Keontae Ingram was their best running back, which I think most of us knew in the spring and summer. And now he's getting 24 and 27 carries a game and averaging close to seven yards a carry and leading the offense. Maybe if he had uh, gotten that chance earlier instead of having, well, no, we have to have a balance. It's 1A, 1B. It has to be even. I mean, it's just This arbitrary preset stuff is just so silly to me. I think that's my, my main point of frustration with it. Yeah, and the, the lack of communication, I wouldn't even say plan, but the lack of communication with all parties involved, uh, Brett and Elon, a quarter, the, the quarterbacks, like, I mean, it's, it's the USC quarterback position. It's going to be as important of a position in Pac-12 football or West Coast football. Like, there's got to be transparency there. Even if it's not what guys want to hear, there's got to be transparency. you got to know, hey, what to expect, what can I – because that, that's the whole thing. When you go back and forth, you lose momentum, you lose rhythm. Well, that's only compounded even more if there's no communication. So that's that, – that's, uh, I'm with you there. That's the biggest issue on my end. I do think that Dart is good enough to play right now, and I don't think that – they lose a lot or anything when they go to him, and so I have no problem with him getting snaps and and maybe just make it clear that, hey, we're, we're going to find a few series in this game when it makes sense for Jackson. We want to get him the experience for next year, this and that. I have no problem with that. Let me bounce one of my very minority opinions and hot takes off you and, and see if I'm totally off base. Uh, in the midst of uh, – defending Keaton Slovis and, and for no other reason than I just I just don't believe that the vitriol being heaped upon him is warranted and I just I continue to not believe that he is the main problem with this offense I have uh dug in on a point that he is not all that different from 2019 Keaton Slovis what is different is there is no Austin Jackson Elijah Vera Tucker Michael Pittman Tyler Vaughns Amon Ross St. Brown and if he had all that personnel with him, he'd probably be pretty close and similar to what we saw in 2019. Is that off base? Is that fair? What's your take? That's totally fair. And I, I'm right with you because I found myself on the postgame radio show being, you called it a Keaton Slovis apologist. I, I feel a similar way. And before the Notre Dame game, I said, hey, I thought that was his biggest game for him personally in a USC uniform just because I felt like he had a lot to prove. And um, when I watched the film – there are very few plays a game that it's, oh, wow, this is on Keaton. Oh, wow, this is a wide-open receiver that he's missing. Obviously, that pick six is a big mistake. Like, that goes a long ways. But it's not like it's, you know, missing reads or not getting to the next progression or things of that nature. There's, at times, you know, things he could do better, the the late game man- or the halftime management uh, against Notre Dame. Sure. That's something he's got to do better. Um, but I think you're, you're, you're spot on. He burst onto the scene as a true freshman and didn't have the natural – learning curve that true freshman quarterbacks have well the flip side of that is if you've already you know progressed that far how much more ceiling is there to tap into and i think the past two calendar years have have showed us that hey maybe keaton really tapped into his ceiling a lot earlier than we we thought or i guess we thought back in 2019 that hey if this is where he's at as a true freshman only imagine where he's what, what his ceiling could be two years later well, maybe that's a misjudgment by everyone of, of maybe the ceiling he's getting into. But at the end of the day, you're, 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 you're spot on. If you had the town around him, if you had the offensive line, the weapons around him, things of that nature, he would be just fine. This offense would be just fine. As a result, he doesn't. And it's a reminder, I think, for all of us football fans that 
it's not always when a quarterback's putting up big time numbers, it's not always just talent or, you know, how good he is. It's so much about the pieces around him. And Keaton had the benefit of that as a young player. And it's a little bit to his downfall now as uh, as a third year starter. Two more points on the QBs and, and just one more on the, on the rotation thing. I would love to just, candidly get Graham Harrell's thoughts on it because I'm not convinced that he is totally on board with all this and the reason I say that and he might be I, I mean I have nothing firm to say that he isn't but I remember last week when we were trying to beat around the bush and they wouldn't say what the plan was we were asking questions on the fringes of it and both Dante and Graham were asked what is the challenge of trying to play two quarterbacks in the game and Dante goes, oh, it's no challenge. It's an advantage for us. It's this, that. It's 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 Arizona's problem. It's right, right. And then we ask Graham, and he goes, well, yeah. I mean, it's hard to keep a guy in the rhythm if he's not playing the whole game. And it was a totally different answer. And so I just have to wonder if, in Graham's mind, he really thought, yeah, this is great. Let's let's play Keaton for three series, and then Dart for a few, and then Keaton for a couple, then Dart for a couple. That's the plan. I would be surprised if that was truly how he felt, but we'll, ne- we'll never know. Last point is I want to get your take on where Keaton Slovis goes from here. I don't know what his draft stock is. It's definitely not what was projected at the start of the season, but I don't think that it would behoove him to return. I think, I mean, we've already seen it. The, the fan base is already sold on Dart as the future, and he should be. And I don't think you can ask Jackson Dart to sit or share a role next year when he knows that he's good enough to play now. I think USC is going to be Jackson Dart's team next year. So does Keaton Slovis transfer somewhere, or does he take a shot at the NFL? I think he takes a shot, and I'm still more bullish on his pro stock than most seem to be. I think he would be a a fine pick in the third, fourth round range. This is the example I always use. We saw a guy like Davis Mills go in that range last year who accomplished a fraction of what Slovis did in college and is now starting for the Houston Texans. There is always a dearth of quarterbacks. There are always Teams are always desperate for quarterback depth. I don't think he's going to have trouble finding a spot to play in the NFL. Most people on our board and then I talk to are more skeptical than me. What do you think Keaton Slovis' pro potential is, and both in terms of draft stock and in terms of talent and his, his arm and, and – playing at that level yeah. i think davis Mills is a good good, good little comp there but uh, i think it takes a hit obviously uh enough of a hit in my opinion where i, I think it would behoove him to go find a new home in college elsewhere because he's going to be free agent number one at the quarterback position unless there's someone out there that, that that's not front of mind for me but i think he can handpick his next location and hopefully ball out with a team that's going to support him and a team who's you know one quarterback away from, from making some things happen I do think he could land on a roster, but I don't think I, I don't think it's his stock is high enough where it's a guaranteed roster spot. I think I think it's it's taken enough of a hit in, in, in that regard. But yeah, in terms of okay, where do things stand ahead for Keaton Slovis and, and USC? I think a lot of that's going to come down to who the next head coach is and who, who's hired there, obviously. But if if Keaton gets any wind of oh, it's going to be you know competition and, and things of that nature, which it most likely will be. Every coach is going to say that, that I think Keaton should be, should go shop around, go find that team. That's, you know, one piece away, because I say this all the time on some of my pack 12 uh, segments is 
when you rank the, the quarterbacks in the Pac-12 right now, you could easily make the argument that Keaton's still like second or third best quarterback in the conference, which is crazy to say when you talk about a guy who is getting benched, but he has that level of production, and there are tons of teams around the country that say, yeah, give me that guy. And funny enough, our opponent this week, Arizona State, I mean, if Jane Daniels dips for the NFL, I think maybe that uh, that spot could be a unique home. But I, I mean, he's got enough, he's got enough talent. But I think he's he's due for another year in college to uh, to get his get his stock even higher than where it's at. Because I think right now it's probably what fifth round. I think he can get it up to second, third round with a successful year because he has the talent to do it. Interesting takes. Always appreciate your quarterback perspective and. Uh, Definitely put a lot of weight in what you say there. Obviously, the other news of the week was the very, very unfortunate loss of Drake London for the rest of the season to a fractured ankle. I just, it was a gut punch to not only the Trojans, but I think anyone who watches his team who just loves college football because he was going to do some very special things. I mean, he already was, obviously, but in terms of the the full end of season stats and, and what he would have put up. It would have been really, really one for the ages, and it's just sad that he's robbed of that, and we're all robbed of that, and it was really the only consistently positive storyline for this team. The question is, what does the USC offense do? There's one line of thought that they could go very run-heavy because they now have Keontae Ingram just rolling. He's averaging 123 yards over the last five games. is just really on a roll, 204 yards last week, not counting all the yards lost to penalties. That weren't his fault. Or do you continue with the same kind of passing split and hope that some of these young guys can step up, hope that Kyle Ford can emerge? Maybe a Lake McCree who got his first catch last week can emerge. Uh, we know that Taj Washington and Gary Bryant will probably be the two main targets, but we, beyond that, we don't know what the passing game looks like. Max, what would you do with this offense moving forward? I mean, it's got to be the, the Taj Washington and Gary Bryant show. And that's like an obvious statement. But I think the, the, the next level to that is those are two guys that – so Gary Bryant's been playing the slot position. But Graham's play calling has been creative only for Drake London to get him the ball. It hasn't necessarily been overly creative for these other guys in terms of, you know, concepts that have a Gary Bryant lined up on the right, running across the field to the left type of thing. It's been very possession receiver heavy. And I think this will be a good challenge for, for Graham to say, hey, I have two quick, athletic, explosive receivers in Gary Bryant and Taj Washington that are not traditional possession receivers. So let me use them in motion. Let me run them around the field. Let me do some creative concepts with them to get them involved. And I, I, I hope that we'll see a, a new evolution of the passing game that isn't possession receiver heavy what, like, like we saw with Drake London. I'm also optimistic about, hey, what, what does this mean for Kyle Ford? And I think there's an argument to, to be made of, hey, Graham's just going to keep calling what he's calling, and Kyle Ford, you got to step up, and maybe now the quarterbacks just look more towards Tosh Washington and Gary Bryant to, to, to get that done. That said, on, my, on our Monday night shows and in the, 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 the coaches' interviews we have, Every both Dante Graham to some extent. I just talked with Clay McGuire as well. Mike Jenks, like running game comes up right in front of mind, and I, I definitely think there will be 
more of an emphasis to keep that going. Um, in, in past weeks, it, it feels like a sentiment. So we, we get down and then we have to go pass heavy. Well, now, now that you don't have 15 out there, maybe even if you do get down against an Arizona State, you keep sticking with the run game. So I think there's, that that will continue to be a factor. But I, I really want to see Taj Washington specifically and Gary Bryant as well get out of this possession receiver mold and see them do much more crossers, much more over routes, some deep out type of things, more slot receiver type of uh, concepts, because I think that's more conducive to their skill set. And hopefully those are things that Kerry and Graham can uh, can drop for them. I totally agree that they have not maximized those two guys in terms of what they do well. And it's been a gripe of mine all season. They finally kind of did a little bit last week given uh, hitting that deep shot to Gary where he gets behind the defense, which is what he can do, and giving Taj some opportunities to catch balls in space that aren't tough contested catches, which is is not his strength. Uh, Here's one last hot take, and then we're going to go to your thoughts on ASU. I think, and this is not backed up by the playing time or the coaches' opinions clearly, I think that Kyle Ford is the second-best receiver on this team right now. I've always been higher on him than the coaches, it seems, I think he has the best hands on the team. And there's a really cool stat I found this week via our, our friends at PFF. You know, Everyone knows that Drake London was le- leading the country in contested catches. I think he had 18, and he was just you know head and shoulders above anyone else in the country in that category. Well, who's second on the Trojans? Kyle Ford and Taj Washington. Bo- both have four, but Kyle Ford's only played 59 snaps. He's played like one-sixth of the snaps of Bryant and Washington, and he's second on the team in contested catches. He has great hands. He makes plays. He's not a burner. Speed's not his asset. But I think that if they actually give him a chance, he will prove why he was a top 100 prospect a few years ago and that he still has a lot in this game. I like that. I like that. And, yeah, maybe we won't see many changes at all. Just ball distribution as the change, but play call not changing as much. Just insert 81 and uh, keep it rolling. We'll see what happens. Well, we're going to bring on Devil's Digest publisher Hodrabino to break down ASU in depth, but I want to do get your thoughts, Max, before we, we part here. Overall, what stands out about this matchup with the Sun Devils to you? ASU is a weird team, Ryan. I mean, early on in the year it was – Oh, they're underachieving, underachieving, and then they caught their stride there in, in the middle, and it was like, all right, this is the best team in the Pac-12 potentially. And then last week, they stubbed their toe, to put it lightly, against Washington State, and they're kind of back at the drawing board a little bit there. Uh, this is a team that when you watch the film, the talent jumps out, the athleticism jumps out, the speed jumps out, um, more so than other Pac-12 teams, especially that, uh, that that USC has played. So that certainly is something that, hey, when they do piece it together, this is a really good football team. Jaden Daniels, to me, He's the best quarterback in the Pac-12, did not play well last year. I think he's had a little bit of the Keaton Slobus effect of he hasn't progressed to the level that I think ASU fans were hopeful, but he's still awfully talented. I love their running backs, but I don't love their receivers as much. I think it's like two years in a row ASU is waiting for a premier receiver. They're waiting for that dude. and. There's going to be ASU fans that might argue that, oh, it's, it's this guy or that guy that's really poised to be the number one guy. But to me, they're still uh, still searching for that, and that's a little bit of what's handicapping Jaden Daniels there. And, and defensively, it's just an athletic, active bunch that I think, I mean, talent-wise across the board, I think has more talent than this USC offense. And whether their scheme comes to play, we'll see. But uh, it's a tall task for USC, even though ASU lost last week. And going on the road, that environment's never easy to play in. So 
uh, even though SU's record's not there, still a big game. ASU has something to play for, and this will be the road to get a bowl game for SC. This will be a tall task. Yeah, I mean, they need two more wins. Uh, Cal's the most obvious of those ones, but then they're going to have to pull an upset over either ASU or UCLA or BYU. Your prediction for this game, Max? My prediction, I'll go uh, ASU 45, USC 28. I don't think SC's got enough in the tank to get it done. I'm taking Arizona State as well, 34-24. But when I hear your prediction, I'm probably being too light on the defensive struggles for the Trojans. So you're probably closer to the mark. Hey, it's a road game, so maybe that's a, a favorable factor in the in the line on this one for SC. Well, great stuff as always, Max. We appreciate it. I'm sure we'll have more quarterback stuff to discuss in future weeks, and we can get back into the coaching search too down the stretch here. But always enjoy our time together, and I know the listeners do, and we'll see you soon. It was fun. Thanks, Ryan. All right, and next into the podcast, we bring in Hode Rubino, publisher of DevilsDigest.com. And if I have this right, the longest-tenured Arizona State beat writer? Yes, uh, yes, I'm the publisher of the website and uh, the longest-tenured uh, beat writer for the Sun Devils. And that's why we have you on for your expertise, and we are going to get deep into this matchup from the Arizona State side of things. Ho, the uh, Sun Devils are 5-3, and 3-2, three, three and two, but coming off two tough losses, 34-21 to Washington State and 35-21 at Utah. What is kind of the tenor of things around the program right now? Yeah, there's, there's definitely a huge sense of uh, some sense of disappointment. Uh, you know, maybe the loss earlier in the year to BYU, although I, you could make the argument that that team has uh, had uh, an up and down season, even though they're barely in the top 25. But I don't think anybody would really categorize that as a quality loss, even though it did, it did happen on the road. But I think it was just a matter of all the elements of pretty much all Pac-12 teams not experiencing a true road environment uh, due to the COVID season in 2020. And when it finally hits them uh, in, in, in person, uh, I think that you know a team like ASU is simply not able to handle those elements. So I was there in Provo, and I can tell you it was definitely a very uh, boisterous crowd maybe even the loudest crowd ASU is going to experience all, all year on the road. Uh, but when it came to the game against Utah, I think that's where the big disappointment is. Uh, granted, we all know uh, the, the, the tragedies that the Utes have had with, with uh, two players passing from uh, gun incidents uh, in a matter of just uh, nine months. And I really felt that that emotion um, maybe may have hurt Utah because ASU uh, led at halftime 21-7. Wasn't playing perfect football, but I definitely uh, felt that they were playing one of their better uh, uh, displays all year. And let's face it, I mean, I think going into that game, ASU knew that if they're going to capture the South Championship, it wasn't going to go through Utah. And for them to play as poorly as they did in the second half uh, with the youth scoring uh, 28 unanswered points, and then you're really going into the bye week with that kind of hanging over your head, you would hope that ASU uh, would be very, very motivated to get back on the winning track as um, quickly as possible. And during ASU's bye week, as we know, Utah lost on the road to Oregon State. So this race for the South Championship was wide open again. Yeah. And even though Utah does and still has a, the, the tiebreaker, um, ASU was absolutely in a much better shape than they were just a week ago. And here here they come and play against Washington State, and we all know the con- all the controversy and the adversity that that program 
was experiencing. So a week after their head coach and four assistants are fired and they lose a heartbreaker at home to BYU, you would think that ASU would have just maybe a little more pep in their step, a little more motivation, and Washington State would be maybe a little more down on their dumps. And, and sure enough, uh, the first three drives uh, for ASU all, all result in turnovers, and that was pretty much the ball game right there. Uh, ASU dug himself a, a 28, 28 to nothing hole, and even even at home, uh, that was uh, really really hard to climb out of. So. I would say there there is definitely a great sense of disappointment now, you know right now with the Sun Devils you know maybe Utah can can lose on the road to Stanford on Friday and 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 maybe ASU should be remotivated again but uh, I think uh, there's um, a lot of a lot of criticism right now about the coaches about the players and really how they are not handling adversity how they came out so flat out of the bye week with so much on the line so uh, I wouldn't say the Moon in Tempe is a uh, pretty good right now and even even if they do beat you uh two losses uh, for arizona state not so much the losses in and itself but also how they uh did uh transpire with a team that's absolutely um coming out coming out flat in uh critical moments well perhaps no solace to arizona state fans but it could be worse as we're going through <laughs> quite a season over here with usc but uh building off that though i'm, I'm interested in the stuff that happened in the off season, the, the recruiting allegations, uh, the you know the pandemic violations and stuff, did that have any carryover effect? And when you couple that with everything you just talked about now, what is the overall sentiment around Herm Edwards within the fan base? Well, look, I mean, I, I honestly get that, that that question asked a lot. Uh, you know, mostly I guess from non from non local media. And my answer is that you know when ASU beat UCLA on the road, which you know, on the one hand, the most impressive win. On the other hand, it's not like UCLA after that ASU loss have been have been playing great football anyway. Um, I don't think anybody really brought up the NCAA um, allegations and the investigation that comes with it. So I really can't say it's the it's it's that specific element that has caused ASU to play poorly in the second half against Utah. Because again, you you look, you look at the tape of that game, ASU played just fine. Uh, in, in the first half. So it's not like something happened at halftime and, oh, yeah, by the way, we have a, a incident investigation hanging over our heads, so now we have to play poorly in the second half, you know. And um, I just think with uh, Washington State, it was just really a matter of just not being able to handle adversity. I mean, sure, it, you know, it, it can happen that your first couple of drives are going to result in a turnover, but, you know, for you not, not, not to be able to successfully battle that, especially when you're playing at home, um, I think it's just a matter of just uh, lack of leadership with the coaches, lack of leadership with the players. I just think that the coaches are just not able to, to push the right buttons with the players. And I think the players, um, you know, whether they're not feeling they're receiving, um, you know, the right support from the coaches or, or just um, really, uh, you know, give, giving up a little too quickly. And for a veteran team like ASU, I mean, that, that, that might be like the really the most disappointing aspect of this all. I, I think it's really, you know, those factors more than the NCAA investigation, because look, I mean, that, that, that thing is really in the background. And I know it, it may be because ASU did already uh, self-impose uh, some penalties, if you will, having not one, but three assistant coaches uh, that just a few days into fall camp were, were all already on admin leave. Uh, you know, so maybe that uh, kind of called off the dogs, if you will. And the NCAA investigators really have not uh, questioned the ASU staff. I never thought they were going to do it during the season. And uh, with a few weeks left 
here in the regular season. I still think that's going to be the case. As we all know, the NCAA is notorious for really dragging their feet when it comes to investigations like this. Yep. So, so sure, on, on the one hand, um, yes, it is a, it is a cloud hovering um, over the program, but I just think with so many seniors on the team and so many draft-eligible players that uh, really want to uh, make themselves available and have the best film possible uh, for, for the NFL draft next year, I really don't think that can affect um, their their mindset and, and their play every Saturday because they're they're out there thinking about the, 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 their next step and they can't let an NCAA investigation, which is guaranteed to have no impact whatsoever on their college career, uh, really, really adversely affect uh, their prospects of, of playing on Sunday. So again, is it a cloud hoping of the program? Yes, but I don't think it's something that's really been a factor in these two, in, in these two consecutive losses. And, and again, I just think there's a lot of players, I mean, really a dozen or more, that uh, are not going to be with the program anymore, not because they're living with disgust, but just for thinking about their next career move. And they can't let an incident investigation or any off-field element to really affect uh, their uh, prospects of uh, advancing their football career. That's all fair. It makes a lot of sense. Even still, though, what is the approval rating of Herm in the fan base, and is there any hotness under his seat as you perceive it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the, the approval rating is really affected more by the two consecutive losses rather than the NCAA investigation. And look, don't, make no mistake about it. I think the majority of the fan base knows that uh, you as a head coach, if this is all happening under your watch, I mean, the, the buck the buck has to, uh, has to stop with you and you have to have some kind of accountability, absolutely. Um, I, I think whether it's ASU maybe having the possibility of having an extremely disappointing season, which I know, you know, maybe the odds are pretty, are pretty good right now for that happening, but you never know. Uh, but I would say between that and just the NCAA investigation, which again, I'm not expecting any NCAA uh, notice of allegations and subsequent sanctions to happen before the end of the calendar year. Um, I just think that with, with all those uh, aspects in place, I think there's a better than 50% chance that Herm Edwards will not be the coach in, in, in 2022. So, uh, you know, whether whether these two uh, consecutive losses turn up the heat that much more or whether really it's an NCAA investigation that, you know, has, has prompted that, I mean, I guess anybody, everybody can have their own theory, but I just feel that with the current landscape right now, um, it's really hard to even put a 50-50% chance that Hermetics will be back in 2022. So if you're asking me, ASU will have a new head coach next season. Who that head coach will be, that that's a whole different discussion uh, because a head coach is most likely going to come here with the premise of that this program is going to be hit with sanctions unless ASU self-imposes some sanctions, which I guess really doesn't uh, change uh, the, the bottom line, but maybe gives... Uh, the head, the new head coach, a clearer picture of, of what's going to happen, and obviously this is assuming that the NCAA is going to accept any self-imposed actions ASU will have. But but again, I I really uh, doubt that Herm Edwards will be the head coach in 2022 in Tempe. Well, very 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 strong conviction there on that. Not surprised to hear it. It was kind of my assumption. Definitely definitely interesting. Well, let's go back to the field, though. Then and. Going back to those two losses, what has been the main struggle, the main inconsistency uh, that's really undermined this team of late? Well, I think 
And I know that uh, if any ASU fans listening to this podcast, they're probably sick of uh, me uh, saying this, but the X factor for this team coming into the 2021 season was the passing game. That was definitely the most disappointing aspect in 2020. And, and I know COVID year caveat four game season, at least in ASU's case, uh, you know, definitely had, uh, you know, an effect on the weirdness of that campaign and everything. I, I get all that, but it was really uh, disappointing to see the passing game do, do so poorly. And I think that every USC fan would admit that if ASU, even had just a decent passing game for that season opener in 2020 in LA Coliseum, ASU would come out victorious. Uh, I mean, it took a while for USC to figure out the ground attack for ASU, but once they did, it was uh, it was game set match. Uh, j- just because um, ASU was not able to move the chains at all uh, th- uh, throwing the ball, so the, the passing game to me was absolutely a crucial element that had to be better in 2021, and it's really been just a huge roller coaster. Even um, the big numbers that they put up against UCLA, um, I'm sure uh, a lot of the USC fans already know that UCLA, at least at the time, maybe still as we speak, is one of the worst uh, passing defenses in in, in all of FBS and probably still the worst in the the Pac-12. So, um, yeah, it's nice nice to pray on the week uh, when you have that opportunity. But uh, but, but, but by and large, uh, this passing game uh, really has been very, very inconsistent. And I think it affected uh, the running game because it was easier for defenses to to key on it more. Their two uh, premier running backs, uh, Demonte Trainum and Rashad White, um, have uh, have been injured um, in, in certain uh, parts of the season. And I just don't think that they've really been handling the workload uh, quite well because there's a third string uh, running back, uh, Daniel Angada, who uh, on the one hand is a is a four star prospect out of high school, and every time he's given an opportunity for ASU. You know, then basically, uh, you know, he really, really proves that he he can make the the most with with every every chance he gets on Saturday. And I just think that the offensive coaching staff has really not handled the running game aspect properly. The passing game, like I said, it's it's it really is uh, in a lot of ways the feast feast or famine. It's really been struggling. And again, um, ASU fans are probably sick sick of uh, me saying this again that you have a lot in a lot of cases. Uh, secondaries of, a, of an ASU opponent coming in the week prior to their game with the Sun Devils, absolutely getting shredded by uh, the, the team that they played a week prior to ASU. And uh, it looked like when they, they come into Sun Devil Stadium or, or they just face ASU and the Sun Devils just, just with their passing game just really go easy on them. And it's almost like, you know, are you not watching film? Are you not able to exploit vulnerabilities that, that showed up only, you know, a week earlier? We're not talking about going to the annals of the 2020 film and trying to see what, what went wrong over there. And it's just really disappointing that the ASU passing game has never been able to be consistent. And that's why, um, you know, I have my doubts that, you know, the ASU passing game is going to be able to really be dominant against a USC secondary that gave up uh, uh, what over 300 um, yards passing to lowly U of A. If any USC fan thinks, oh, wow, you know, now – you got Jaden Daniels at quarterback and a much better uh, uh, stable of wide receivers compared to U of A. So ASU is not going to pass for 400 or 500 passing yards. Uh, trust me, I don't think you really have to worry about that because the consistency of that uh, offensive facet for the Sun Devils, I think, is one of the main reasons why they don't have a better record right now. Now, you notice I'm really not talking about the defense. 
I know the defense um, has definitely not showed itself all that well in the last two games, but I think by and large, we look at the entire season, I really can't uh, come with a lot of complaints uh, for this defense because I, I think they're, the uh, support they're getting from the offense is minimal at best when you look at the whole uh, body of work, which is the 2021 season. And even in a game against Washington State, okay, I mean, they gave, they, they gave up 28 points and and uh, 24 of those points were off of turnovers. So, again, how much can you really, um, you know, fault the defense when it comes to that? But in the second half, the defense did play better. They kept Washington State out of the end zone. The Cougars only scored six points. So, uh, this has been kind of a running theme that the defense is really giving the offense a lot of opportunities to bounce back uh, because uh, they, they're they really holding their end of the bargain. Even that uh, loss to, the, to BYU, not that ASU played a great game, but... BYU in the second half essentially scored a garbage time touchdown, and that's it. So again, so I'm, I'm, the defense is definitely not playing perfect, but uh, but I just feel there's uh, much more issues right now going on in the offense, especially with the passing game. And um, I, I'm curious to see uh, with uh, USC, which um, as as you know better than me, has been a huge huge is- issue with their defensive play. Does ASU take advantage of it? I'm in some respects really really skeptical that whether it's a ground attack or the uh, passing uh, or the aerial attack that uh, ASU is really going to light up the scoreboard against against USC, even though uh, pretty much every Pac-12 team on their schedule so far has done that. USC specializes in vulnerability on defense, so I think you can go at it any way you want. But that's interesting to hear about the passing. I was going to ask you about Jaden Daniels because you know you go back a couple of years and Jaden Daniels and Keaton Slovis were the rising stars in this conference. And I think a lot of USC fans are vocal about their frustration about the lack of development or, or getting to the next level for Keaton Slovis and, and that they don't feel that like he's been maximized or that he got to where they thought he was heading after that first year. What has maybe limited Jaden Daniels, who, if I'm looking at it right, has 1,734 passing yards, seven touchdowns, five picks, uh, has rushed for 432 yards and four touchdowns. What's been the part of his game that has not maybe gotten to where fans thought it would get? Well, I mean, I think uh, it's it's really a multi-part answer. Um, you know, I, when when I talk about the you know the, the running game, um, when the running game is able to bail out uh, Jaden Daniels in the passing game, then I think it's easier for for that aspect of the offense to look good. And I think really the only exception where the passing game was not taking a back seat to the running game at all, at least not to start the game, was against UCLA. But again, that goes back to the caveat: UCLA's secondary secondary is really really bad. So, you know, it's nice to see at least the passing game when they can prey on the weak to actually take advantage of that opportunity. But uh, but I just feel that uh, when the running game uh, is not flowing for ASU, and that's definitely has been an issue in uh, in recent weeks, uh, the, the extra pressure on, on Jaden Daniels and the wide receivers is really not helping matters. You take a, a seasoned Pac-12 veteran like Brian Thompson, and, and if he's failing you, uh, then uh, it almost seems like this passing game just wasn't meant uh, really really to get back in track. And going back to what I said uh, earlier, um, I thought this was going to be the X factor going to going into the 2021 season. So at least for me personally, it's not any surprise whatsoever to see ASU struggling the way they are just because the passing game uh, has been, like I said, this one wild roller coaster ride in 2021. Now, I'm just looking at the stats, though. The, the, the run game has been productive. I think it's 194.8 rushing yards a game. Uh, I don't know if it's been consistent, but overall it's been productive. What has worked well in that regard? 
Well, I, I just think that in, in terms of a one-two punch, and I would even say like a three-headed monster, um, I, I really would put ASU's uh, running back group uh, not only against any Pac-12 running back group, but I would put them against a lot of uh, top uh, college teams around the country. Uh, that's if all those players are really playing up to the potential and all of them are healthy. And like I said, uh, there's, it's kind of been like a little revolving door where one run, run, running back is injured and when he, when he comes back to the lineup, the other running back gets injured. Definitely has been an issue. Uh, you know, and, and I think also just uh, sometimes the play calling uh, really uh, does leave you frustrated because against Utah, uh, again, when they led 21, uh, 21 to 7, they rushed in the first half in Salt Lake City for 131 yards. And, and I know Utah is having an okay season. I, I, think, I think a great season. But still, uh, to do that for a team such as the Utes, which prides itself on run defense, which prides itself on controlling the line of scrimmage, that shows you how much talent there is in, in, in that offensive backfield for the Sun Devils. But then when they go away uh, from that, when they try to pass the ball more, uh, I think uh, that that's, uh, that, that's really uh, getting to issues because now if you got second and long, third and long, it's a, it only makes sense for you to to stay away from the running game. And needless to say, when you uh, fast forward to last week, you put yourself in a 28 to nothing hole uh, at home against Washington State. So, of course, the running game is going to be almost a virtual uh, afterthought in, in, in your offensive game plan uh, as you're doing in-game adjustments. So uh, I don't think the running game has really failed ASU. I just, I just feel that... Uh, you know, sometimes uh, the the play calling is not is not really there when you, when you we need to run the ball, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, when you talk about uh, the passing game really failing um, ASU in certain games, that puts that much pressure on the running game. And you know, if I'm going back going back again to that 2020 season opener when ASU and USC met, uh, when USC was able to figure out the running game. And it took him a while, but they did. Uh, they were able to slow it down quite a bit, especially in the fourth quarter. ASU doesn't doesn't have the answer, um, you know, with the with the, with the passing game to to uh, counterbalance that. It, it really is just a matter of um, you know, not the running game really having issues in terms of lack of talent, or but it's just more just the just, uh, key injuries that really really plagued them. And I just feel just the um, offensive uh, game planning and the in-game adjustments on offense are not always doing justice, which the justice for what I think is a very, very talented ground attack for the Sun Devils. And see, here USC fans thought they were the only ones frustrated with the, the game management and the coaching staff and all that stuff. It happens elsewhere. Just uh, to wrap it up, we'll hit the defense real quick. And the guy who jumps out on paper is linebacker Darian Butler, 50 tackles, three interceptions, seven tackles for loss, doing a bit of everything. What does he meant to that unit, and, and who else should fans be aware of on that side of the ball? Darren Butler um, absolutely uh, has, has been having an outstanding season. Uh, he really re- reshaped his body. I mean, not that he was, you know, overweight and pudgy when it, coming in here as a freshman. He had a very, very good freshman year for you know for those fans that remember the the, the way he played uh, back, back then. But uh, he's uh, he's definitely somebody uh, who is uh, the, the leader of the defense, a, a team captain. Uh, I mean. One of those players where he puts up great numbers and uh, you're kind of being impressed, but also maybe in, in some respects t- t- taking it for granted because he has been definitely one of the most consistent players on that side of the ball for ASU since he arrived in Tempe. Uh, 
I would say that uh, other players to look, look out for, and and this name uh, might be familiar for USC fans if they remember the season opener and uh, a player that even I would say shocked ASU fans with how well he played his defensive end Michael Matus, uh, who uh, really had his breakout game against USC even in a losing cause in in, in 2020. And uh, even against Washington State, he was definitely uh, one, one, one of the better players um, on the field. Uh, doesn't have, um, you know, any uh, imposing physical measurements or crazy freak athletic speed, but just uh, a veteran defensive end uh, that, um, you know, that does, does ultimately just make, make all the plays at the, at the right time, at the right place. So that's an, another player uh, that, uh, that I would look out for. And um, I have to say a name that uh, is very, very familiar for USC fans, uh, uh, Jack Jones, a yep. cornerback. Yep. Uh, I think, not, not that he had um, a really uh, down year when he first arrived uh, to ASU in, 20, in 2019. I think he actually led the team back then in past breakups. Uh, in 2020, as uh, some fans may recall, uh, he was uh, suspended uh, for the majority of, the, uh, majority of, the, of that four-game season. There were some question marks whether or not he will be back in 2021, and he did he did come back. And I really think he's playing his best football in Tempe. And again, I thought that he wasn't all that bad at all when he first arrived and was arrived in, in 2019. Uh, this is going to be his last time uh, facing uh, facing USC. I think he's going to be plenty uh, plenty motivated. I'm sure the trash talk will be flowing just a little extra uh, from uh, from his direction. So uh, I'm I'm curious to see if uh, you know if he can play well, but I think overall, when you look at his body of work in 2021, he really it uh, really has put on a good season. So uh, I think he's, he's definitely another player I would definitely be on the lookout for for on the ASU defense. Very good. Well, as always, we close with predictions. And boy, I mean, listen to everything you've said. Now I would I would maybe consider changing the prediction I made earlier on this podcast, except. I've seen too much of this USC football team, and I've seen them against any decent opponent find a way to be down 20 points in the fourth quarter each time and, and lose. So as as chaotic or as, as in much disarray as ASU may be, I still cannot curry any confidence for the Trojans. But, Hode, from your perspective, what is your prediction for Saturday night? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there's no doubt that USC is struggling a lot on, on both sides of the ball. And – on the one hand, you can say that if USC blew out uh, U of A uh, last week in the Coliseum, that really wouldn't move the needle. That wouldn't tell you, okay, maybe USC is about to uh, really uh, play much better football in the home stretch. But the, the fact that USC struggled as much as they did against a team that hasn't won a game since, what, October some, something in 2019, yeah. to see USC struggle that much at home against the Wildcats, and, and I know that you can look back to the home games that – Against Stanford, Oregon State, and Utah, it's not like it's not like USC uh, broke the mold. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so maybe, uh, so maybe it, it is it is par for the course. But I would say that if USC actually convincingly beat Arizona the week before, it maybe showed that things are somewhat turning around, and maybe that defense can really uh, do a good job against against a Pac-12 team. I guess not named uh, Washington State. Um, I, I would be uh, maybe more skeptical about the outcome of this game, but make no mistake about it. I'm not a predicting an ASU blowout by any means. I think it's kind of ironic that every Pac-12 home game, the odds makers in Vegas had ASU not only as a double-digit favorite, but as a two-touchdown favorite. And for this uh, USC game, especially with the uh, unfortunate loss of, of Drake London, 
USCS is still being able to be just under a double-digit uh, underdog, maybe, maybe like eight, eight or nine points or something like that. I think the game might even be a little closer than that. Um, I think you're just going to see this uh, typical uh, ro- roller coaster ride that this ASU offense is going to take you on. Uh, the defense, uh, you know, may have some spots where they're looking really vulnerable, but uh, when they when they want to put on the clamps, and even in losses, they prove that they can they, they can absolutely they can they can absolutely do that. And um, and like you and I talked earlier in the week, uh, life life for this USC passing game without Drake London. This is the first game we're actually going to see that, and I don't think it's uh, going to be overly pessimistic or hyperbolic to say that it's it's definitely it's definitely going to be a struggle for USC that new reality. So with all these factors in place, I think this game is going to be more entertaining, if, if, that's, if that's a good description. Sure. And I see, I see ASU uh, beating USC 30-24. to 24. Very good. Very, very good. Excellent analysis, Hode. Great insight and perspective. We really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much, as always, Ryan. Okay, that is our show. Much thanks, as always, to Max Brown for being a part of the program. Good to get back with him after a a little bit of a hiatus, and much thanks to Ho Drabino of Devil's Digest for dropping great perspective and insight on the Arizona State side of this matchup. We will be in Tempe, Arizona for the game. Of course, as always, plenty of coverage to come this weekend. So follow along with us for the rest of the season. And with the coaching search conclusion likely getting closer and closer and closer There should be some fun discussion on our Trojan Talk message board. We'd love to have you all a part of it if you are not. Either way, thank you for listening to the Trojan Talk podcast. It has uh, grown significantly this year in listenership, which we appreciate, and it's always fun to put together. Until next time, we will see you.